John Goldthorpe, welcome to the new school. Thank you. It's great to be here. John, um, I'm particularly interested in this conversation because uh, the archetypes uh, have emerged as a significant theme in new school conversations. And uh, we're actually thinking about grouping these together uh, as a sub, uh, subgroup, a kind of a uh, department of the new school, uh, which we're tentatively calling Archi, the Archetypal Research Convivium. And as you know, convivium derives from the Latin meaning to live together. Uh, and uh, so if I look back at the archetype conversations we've done, we've done uh, talks on Carl Jung, we've done talks on archetypal psychology, um, and we've done, um, we've done a considerable number of talks on Ibn Arabi, who was the Sufi teacher that Henry Corbin um, uh, wrote so beautifully about uh, in Alone with the Alone, the great uh, French scholar. Um, and uh, he, of course, Corbin was, along with Jung, were the two people James Hillman, the founder of archetypal psychology, credited as his principal. Uh, so we've been kind of working our way into this field. Um, and we have uh, conversations coming up on archetypal psychology with Rachel Naomi Remen, Angelus Arian, uh, the grief uh, uh, worker Francis Weller and others. So in that context, um, after I did a, I've only been studying this for nine months, and so uh, after uh, I gave a little talk on this at the New School a few weeks ago, uh, you uh, sent me a note and uh, you said, Dear Michael Lerner, I'm the man from Point Reyes with a background in archetypal psychology. Uh, and you said you admired my vulnerability, which was real, <laughs> in uh, entering this area uh, and in uh, talking about my own experience with it. And you said, My own immersion in all matters archetypal occurred meeting Hillman through Robert Bly at the Mendocino Men's Conference in 1988. At Hillman's suggestion, I went on to grad school to study with Gordon Tappan and taught the graduate seminar, uh, Archetypal Psychology Seminar, at Sonoma State for several years. For a good 10 years, I was a true Hillmaniac as a therapist and cultural worker. Over time, my gratitude has not diminished, but like you, I see smell some of Hillman's deep limitations but I must emphasize that I do believe an understanding of his position, its history, and necessity is essential for moving beyond our deeply felt but largely abstract positions on all things that matter most to us, relationships caring for one another in the natural world and the nature of self-knowledge, the deepest ontological and epistemological questions. Hillman's radical position helps us to see these issues in a much fuller light. So you offered to... Um, uh, you, you said so beautifully, I felt most strongly, was that you were talking about archetypal psychology, not from within it. You were speaking abstractly, a language that our souls have a hard time relating to. Imagination is the atmosphere of the soul, the arts, poetry. Anything that provides an aesthetic echo moves the soul. Uh, and uh, you... you uh, uh, you said, in this mode of making sense, no explanation is necessary. Belief is irrelevant. 
um, definitions are not helpful. Uh, the image portrays its own sensibility. Our work is to surrender uh, our own to what grabs our soul. And then you offered to give us a kind of a, uh, uh, an introduction to uh, Hillman, uh, uh, understanding archetypal psychology as a Western middle way with many phenomenological and epistemological overlaps with Buddhism. Um, so you said, if I'd like to pursue this, uh, we should get together. So I just, I was so charmed by that, uh, that uh, email mm. that I thought, I've got a lot to learn from this man. So uh, let me start by asking you, how did you come to Hillman? Sort of who are you and how did you, how did you get to Hillman? Well, Michael, I just want to start with, you know, the romantic sensibility. I think I was born with that. Beauty is truth. Truth is beauty. That's all you know on earth. That's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. And that always rang true. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really, you know, but I grew up as an intellectual, as a, as a, a student who really wanted to know and then needed rational explanations. So I st- and I got caught up in rational explanations. But all along, I'm going to build up here to how, why I came to Bly. As an undergrad, whenever I would have the chance to hear a poet, it didn't make sense to me, but it moved me. I mean, it really moved me. And every time I was in the presence of a poet, I knew I was in the, in the presence of an intelligence that was so much larger than anything I could uh, understand or that my studies had led me to really, uh, as I said, understand or comprehend. But I knew there was something there. Bly came along, and it was the time of the... This is Robert Bly. Robert Bly, the poet, came along, meaning that he, as he was wont to do in those days, and those days being in the late 80s, into San Francisco doing poetry reading for hundreds or thousands of people. And this guy was such a, a force for me in that the poems he was reading about Kabir, Rumi, uh, Machado, struck something in me and he would use this word soul. And I hadn't heard this word before in any kind of meaningful way, but the way he used it, again, I didn't understand, but I knew he was, he was touching some area that was not about my brain or my mind or thinking in the way that I usually understood it, but it was clear this guy through his poetry was thinking deeply. And what I was struck by is that thinking and feeling when he was doing his poetry, you could sort of differentiate, but really they were the same thing. And that's what I mean when I said in the letter that the image carries its own meaning. When we tend to work with a poem and we try to explain it, we kill it. And that's what Hillman means by stick to the image. Because to explain it is to, just to kill the psyche. And so today what I want to do is try and discover the basics of what Hillman was about and along the way um, give a sense of what it means to be psychological. And how I came to this was Bly. Bly then was running the men's workshops, the Mendocino men's workshops. I was 25. I went because of Bly. I knew nothing of Hillman. And I was the youngest guy there by only about 20 years. 
And I soon caught on that the reason the rest of the men were there is they had all come to that place in their life where it wasn't working. They'd fallen down. I was young. I was totally together in my own mind. Life was working great. And Bly would look at me and he would just shake his head. And then in the morning, he would come around with his lute-like instrument and wake each of us, which was a beautiful gesture, right? We would come to the morning through a poem. It was so beautiful for everyone except me at that conference because he would look at me. I I would be asleep, you know, I'd wake out of sleep to Bly, basically growling with some poem about you poor, innocent, naive fool. You think you know it all, you know nothing. You're going to go down, and it's going to be so ugly. <laughs> I, I can say no more. Good morning, you loser. That, 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 that was basically his, his relationship with John, the 25-year-old. I would stumble off, and I would go to, the, to be with the other men who were all on their stage, some stage of life falling apart. And there was Hillman. Hillman was no kinder than Bly. Uh, I, I would say these guys were friendly but not nice. There was clearly a huge heart, loving but very serious. And what they were serious about was your soul and how does one care for your soul in a culture that has no knowledge of it. So the first time I heard Hillman speak, I was in the presence of a, uh, of a, of a soul, uh, of, of an imagination that was wild and cultivated and civilized at the same time, meaning that he knew his traditions uh, from the pre-Socratics, Pythagoras, through Plato, through the Renaissance, through Jung, to where he'd got to be. And this intelligence was vast, and it was compelling, because that's where I learned that the soul way, the soul's medium is imagination, is the hand is to our body, so the imagination is to soul. Could you say that again? As the hand is, the bo- is to the body, so the imagination is to soul. What and do you mean by that? I mean the soul, the soul moves through the imagination, and its language is, its language is images. Cool. Thank you. Hillman calls this the poetic basis of mind. The soul responds to images. What Hillman the soul responds to images, but don't you also say that Hillman says that the soul is the image? Well, he quotes Jung, uh, image is psyche. Psyche is the, is the personification of the human soul. Okay. Anima, anima mundi, where Hillman goes, the personification of the world soul. Our story, the story of psychology, is the story of psyche in eros. The logos of psyche. Psycholo- to be psychological is to be familiar with psyche's story. So, where I wanted to go with beauty and truth and to talk about Hillman, and by way of that to talk about me, and what moves me is care of the soul. The term has been a bit diluted in popular culture through the blessing and the curse of Thomas More. 
right? The blessing is we now have a much wider sense of what soul is. And I think Thomas More has done us a great favor, but now uh, every other person is talking about soul in a way that Hillman would say convolutes soul and spirit, mind and body. And so I want to work that out today so, so we begin to understand that. Yeah, so let's just pause there for a moment because um, I've been reading both Hillman and Moore. And mm-hmm. so as a novice, I found they were different. And even though Moore, Thomas Moore, seems to be explicating Hillman, who's a more difficult person to read, Nonetheless, and I'm just trying this mm-hmm. out on you, mm-hmm. I'm told that Hillman was not interested in a psychology of self-improvement, that he uh, didn't like the imperialism of the ego, that he thought that we entered the jungle of the archetypes to observe them. Uh, the line he has somewhere that the ego is ultimately like a janitor that stokes and banks the fires of the different archetypes. Moore, by contrast, strikes me as a course in self-improvement using Hillman's psychology. There's a lot of the self-improvement sort of modality, in a sense, in Moore as I read him. And so this is a naive take. And I'm, you said the blessing and the curse. I've also r- run into a lot of Hillman people who turn up their noses at Moore, basically. I want to be clear, I'm not turning up my nose. Yeah, yeah but yeah. some people yeah. do. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't mm-hmm. like Moore, they like mm-hmm. Hillman. Mm-hmm. So with my naive take and running into mm-hmm. Hillmaniacs who mm-hmm. turn up their nose at Moore, mm-hmm. I'm asking, how do you differentiate, if at all? Because, I mean, Moore edited um, Hillman's Pale Fire and... Blue and, Fire. Excuse me? A Blue Fire. Blue Fire, right. Yeah. So, and he, he clearly is devoted, uh, and I find him a wonderful writer, but I'm trying to understand how you see the mm-hmm. differentiation between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I think you know Moore was a monk, a Catholic monk. Yes. Dedicated. That stream is there. Hillman is a uh, rabid pagan. Okay. And uh, what I mean by rabid is Hillman uh, is vehement, and his paganism and his uh, hatred for all things monotheistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that uh, (coughs) without equivocation, hatred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So he and Moore have that difference. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you said, Moore, uh, Thomas Moore was very close to Hillman Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, honors Hillman. Mm -hmm. I would be a little concerned about this term Mm self-improvement. And I think I'd like to maybe lay out a few pieces and then we'll go go back to that because I want to talk about identity and that has to do with self-improvement. Yeah. So let me just finish up quickly about, so that was my introduction to Hillman. I went back a second year because of Hillman. I didn't want to be kicked around by Bly anymore, but I I wanted more Hillman. Uh, I read everything I could in the intervening year by by Hillman, so I felt like I'd have the courage to go up and talk with him. And uh, I did shakingly, and he was very gracious with me, and I said I really wanted to study his work. Where could I do that? He said there's only one place in the country, and that happened to be Sonoma State uh, with a man named Gordon Tappan. 
So I, uh, about a week later, made an appointment to see Gordon Tappan, who on the phone said uh, he wasn't taking any new graduate students, hadn't in several years, but if Hillman sent me, he'd like to meet me. So we met, and after an hour, he says, you know what, uh, I'll take you and you'll be my last graduate student. And you will live next door to me and you'll have your study and library at my house and we'll be together for two years. And at the end of that, uh, you'll know something uh, about Hillman and you'll have a degree that will be absolutely worthless. Are we un do we understand one another? <laughs> and I said, uh, we understand one another. <laughs> uh, and so it came to pass that I did live next door to Gordon, uh, was with him, uh, and that was my degree program. So it was a mentor who was program. Gordon Tappan, just so we have a sense of that? Gordon Tappan was, first of all, an Adlerian. A what? An Adlerian. Okay. Uh, so social community psychology, the Adler, and that, mm. that strain mm. of depth psychologist through mm. Freud. And then uh, he was a Jungian. Uh, then he was Hillmanian. And he was the founder of the psychology department at Sonoma State. Uh, he was wild in the best sense of the term. Is he still with us? No, he died. Uh, he died uh, two years after I finished. A year uh -huh. after I finished with him, um, he had cancer and went fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's how I ended up teaching the graduate program. Uh -huh. He he made it uh, possible, even though at the time I had a master's. Uh, because of his authority there, that they would hire me for a couple of years till they found someone with a PhD. Mm -hmm. So that's the way it came to pass. Wow. So uh, my uh, understanding of archetypal psychology comes through Gordon. And there is a practice that isn't talked about much. And there's, as in all these traditions, there's a practice. And the practice is called image work. And so in Hillman's writings, you can find that. Um, in image the work? Image work. So what you learn to do, if the opus, if what we're doing is soul-making, that's the, that's the purpose of psychology, right? Uh, the, the way to learn to do that is to learn to work with images. That's what, the, that's what psyche, psyche brings forth, is images. So dream work is the way we know that, through Jung. Um, Hillman had a broader take because he believed, as did Jung, but Jung focused on the dream that the, that the soul is everywhere and in all things. And so when we take anything as an image, we begin the work with soul. So how about I'll, I'll jump to a couple, I want to lay out because we should be taking a month for this, and we're going to take 45 minutes. Um, I thought, what can I do that would be helpful so maybe these future conversations here, there'll be a way of, at least in my understanding of Hillman, of kind of the foundation yeah, and the no, fundamental. Yeah, this is wonderful. Uh, we're totally into it. Okay? Yeah. So what I want to uh, talk about, first of all, is the nature of image and the nature of form. And to do that, um, I'm going to use an instrument called the Birenbau, a musical instrument, because it's easier to feel because, again, this is about the relationship between Psyche and Eros. It's about the relationship between love and beauty. And uh, both of those things, we know them when we see them, but they're really hard to articulate. So Psyche feels. She, she is beauty, and she has an affinity for beauty. And she has, she's a particular kind of beauty. She's psychic beauty. She's psychological beauty. So how do we characterize that? 
That's always the work, differentiating all these kinds of beauties. One archetype of beauty we know is Aphrodite, but she's, an Aphrodite, she's, she's a beauty of a physical form. That's different than the psychological beauty. So these are the kinds of things I want to try and tease out as we move along. goes somewhere on a continuum between I like it, maybe even find it beautiful, and uh, this is ugly. I don't like this sound. Well, as soon as you have, you know, as soon as you have that awareness of a response, you're in the soul's realm. Because the soul is aesthetic. Its nature is aesthetic. It always has a response, drawn in or pulling away, ugly or beautiful. You know these things. Now, a soul can only engage with a form, an image, in Hillman's language, an appearance. What I've created here, out of nothing really, by making a palette of time, by circumscribing time, binding time with notations, with sounds, with punctuation, I've created a form. And you can feel it. That's an image. So, what often gets confused when you hear an image, when you hear that word image, we think picture, right? It's not just a picture. Each archetype, each god has its own feel. They might be in the room and you don't see them. You just feel them. Just like now, as I go on and build the form, you'll feel the form. There might be a god here. archetype. Now another aspect of this, as I said, love and hate, ugly and beautiful. All archetypes we find puzzling because they have this duplicity to them. A two-formed nature. We, as humans in this age, tend to identify this as right and wrong. The beautiful is right, the ugly is wrong. But you know what? That's wrong. Because the movement from good to bad, from ugly to beautiful, is movement. And the gods are always in motion. So Pan, the god of rape, the god of nature, 
also serves in the story of Psyche and Eros, serves Psyche. And Pan, actually, is the god of rhythm. Because Pan, when he's in panic, is running through the forest in a straight line, ready to rape, ready to invoke panic in others. But what stops Pan? What turns him around? The pipes of Pan. As soon as one plays music, one is engaged in rhythm, one is no longer going in a straight line, one is engaged in a conversation between silence and sound, one might even be dancing. And if one is dancing, one is not involved in rape or creating panic. So in this way, I've created an image for you where you can see what I'm saying, but I don't think with your eyes. You can feel what I'm saying, but I don't think with any of your five senses. We are now in the realm of psyche. I'm thinking psychologically, psychologically, and so are you. All through images that have been created out of nothing, so to speak. So form, image. Now there's one God who looks at this a little differently. And this God, Hillman thinks, is the God that has become our God unconsciously in this culture. And that God is Apollo. Let me try and convey to you Apollo's approach to what I've just done. You might recognize it. It's kind of the way we move in our culture. So if you notice, my feet are moving. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And my hands, they're going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Excuse me, can't do that. One, two, three, one, two, three. So, you know, really, all I'm doing is three over four. Now, if I say to you, all I'm doing is three over four, does that give you any feeling for anything? No. That's an abstraction. The abstraction needs to be embodied through coming into being. And it comes into being when I play, and I do mean play, you can now feel this. Now, there's nothing wrong with Apollo. He is actually the god of music. He is the god of architecture. But if we only stick with his view from 10,000 feet, we can draw this out, but we get no feeling. Now, it's not fair to say that this is merely an idea. Three over four that I'm playing, excuse me, it's not merely fair to say this is information. This is an idea. It is an archetypal form. 
but needs to become embodied in the image before your soul can feel it. I am simply an image moving before you at this moment. Your soul knows this. Matter of fact, it's about all your soul knows. So that's form and image. And the bringing, into, the bringing out or bringing forward, the bringing forward of images is soul making. Because now we have something to move with. This happens every night in your dreams. And if you're psychologically minded, it happens every moment of your day if you choose to give your attention in that way. So another piece of this that's really important is that we get confused about the two worlds that we live in simultaneously. One way to characterize that is the temporal and the eternal. Life here on earth where matter matters and the soul's realm where it is about images and appearances. On earth, those images and appearances have another characteristics. They are perceivable by your five senses. But as you saw when I told the little piece about Pan, you don't need those senses to become psych psychological. Excuse me, you need those senses. As Blake said, the senses are the chief inlets of soul in our age. You need those senses to build a picture. But once we have the picture, it's not about the senses. So the appearances come through the senses, but not of the, but not of the senses. Yeah? So what I want to do here, because Hillman is always talking about the soul being in the middle realm. The soul is the force, the power, that joins heaven and earth. The soul is the power that joins matter and mind, that joins spirit and body. The greatest pathology of our culture, by not knowing about soul, is that we become dualistic. Either or. It's either of the mind or of the body. You're a materialist or an idealist or a wah-wah new ager, but you don't know how to make the two go together. So our science sticks, which I've tried to convey here in this little green, there's the world of matter, of merely matter. That's the materialist position. The soul, which, will, which I'm characterizing here, you see, encompasses the material. It's bigger than. But because the material is bound to the laws of the earth, the laws that, that conventional science conveys so well, and that does work and is true in a very limited sense, but a very necessary sense, we tend in this age to identify with this dimension. The soul's realm here is the one of images. The larger, more encompassing realm here which we'll call spiritual or, the, or of mind, you'll see encompasses the soul. 
the work of the soul is to ground the spirit in images. When the spirit is grounded in images, it is perceivable by your body, by your soul. Now, I've been saying soul, I've been saying image. There's another word for this, organ of perception, and that is your heart. I'm not talking about your heart that's a pump. I'm talking about that heart that feels what I'm saying, that knows that thinking and feeling are the same thing when it is grounded in an image, in poetry, in your dreams, in anything that you can make sense of imaginally by thinking psychologically. Now we get to Hellman's big beef, and this is where we want to talk about, I want to try and clarify some points. It's often talked about uh, in those who are studying Hellman, the spirit-soul tension, or in Hellman, the way it's portrayed is he's, 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 a, he's opposed to spirit. It is true that he takes endless delight in mocking and making fun of those who he sees as ungrounded by identifying themselves with spirit. It, it is a vicious kind of fun to be around him when he is in that mode. But his point, if you understand it, is actually profound. Because his point is the soul's ground and our ground is in the imagination, is in your heart. And you can actually only feel your heart and be with your heart when you're grounded in an image. So the folks who talk in abstractions, spiritually in abstractions, where you don't hear the poetry in it, where there's no story that your soul can follow, he feels are actually doing a great disservice. So in his, to his way of thinking, he is a spiritual he, he is advocating spirit, but he's advocating spirit being grounded in your, through the imagination, in your heart, in your soul. That's what it means to be psychological. So the tension really is with speaking abstractly, not with spirit per se. So equally abstract are the folks that he also loves what he calls the materialists. Because anything that we call life has something in it that you and I recognize. When we look in each other's eyes, something is going on. The spirit is moving. We have a hard time articulating that, but something's going on. There is nothing that is mere matter. Everything that we perceive is already animated, meaning it has a life. This is one aspect of calling Hillman an animist. That's the pagan sensibility. If we had more time, I would go into this in terms of, this is what it, I'm loosely talking about now, the poetic basis of mind, the nature of poetry, the nature of making sense, and really understanding that a word is, a, is, a, is a, a form of spirit informed. It's shaped by the shape of a word. And each word is a spirit being. When you hear poetry, you know this. 
When you hear a story, you know this. So for Hillman, the heart is where the spirit is grounded. And for the heart and the spirit to engage with one another, we have to follow the heart's way. Images. Metaphor. Another way he says this, so one of the lines he likes to quote from you, no image, no psyche. But another one, because of the tales, once we get into the tales, no echo, no psyche. In other words, when I speak to you, if it doesn't resonate in a more than literal way, if you feel I'm only giving you information, we're not really communicating. It has to reverberate. When it reverberates, you feel something. And that, that feeling is a feeling of depth or interiority. That's your soul that's being psychological. I hope you don't mistake what I'm giving here as information. I am trying to deepen your understanding of what it means to be informed. We are in a form here, and we are in it. And that's where life begins. I want to do a little bit more here because I realized there was another point I wanted to make. Now, rhythm technically is defined by the space between the beats. In this case, the space between the sounds and that space we call silence. But really, that's the auditory, sensible way of talking about eternity. And you know this because as you listen, there's a feeling of depth. Is that depth something sensible? in the ordinary way we mean it? No. You've touched a different ground. We feel this all the time, but because we don't have the ideas, we can't make sense of our actual experience. So what Hillman is giving all the time are ideas through images. And those ideas in images ground the soul and ground the unity. And the only reality we can actually say we really know, psychological reality, the reality of your heart, the reality that's conveyed in poetry and myth, in stories that have something to them. So the the confusion that I've conveyed that can go in two directions, imagining the world as mere matter, or going in the other direction, where everything is is spiritual in a woo-woo sense, not being grounded in an image, Hillman calls both of those states accurately being literal. Because you take something not as an image through which you have an experience, 
when I did the little story, a little bit, a little image on Pan, you had an experience through that image, just as you live your life through your heart, which is generally very troubling. That's another aspect that we'll get to. The spiritual person wants to transcend, wants to get out of the mess, wants life to be easy and groovy, and depending on your, woo, your version of woo-woo, you know, it's going to be pretty and beautiful and really loving in the sweetest way. Now, I have a little mockery in my voice because while I also have those aspirations, the punchline of depth psychology is that there is a vertical line here, but the way up is by going down. Life has to be messy, actually messy. The story of Psyche and Eros is not a pretty story. They are passionate, there is love, there's mania, and there are big messes. The end of the story, they have a child. That child's name is Pleasure. How does this make sense? And the other difficult piece here is that you don't go through the story once or twice. You go through it your whole life because you are caught again and again by eros, by love, in a form of mania where all the tales that we tell in mythology and all the poems are speaking about where those, where those beings come into your life, either through your dreams or, for what, or what's being actually acted out. It's not really fair to say, and it's completely unhumanian to say acted out. is being displayed through your life. To be psychological is to be able to read that in a way that brings that to life in your awareness. So when I say your awareness, now let me go to identity and then Michael and I will engage in, uh, with you guys with conversation. But this is essential. So Hillman and transcendence. Hillman believes we are actually only ever grounded in the heart, which is a spiritual place, because the imagination is of the spirit. And psyche, the organ, your heart, is the place where those two meet. To become an earthling is to take this trip. And to become an earthling is to see everything else as animated and participating in the story as well. And through knowing those stories, you become related to one another, to your soul, and to the more than human world. But it is through images. So I want to go on to identity because the other piece in Hillman that throws people so deeply into craziness is understanding the relationship of identity, who we think we are, or who we imagine ourselves to be, and the soul. And this very confusing juxtaposition of two ways of making sense of ourselves in the world. Those two ways we can characterize uh, in the following way. Literal or imaginal. You may recall literal and imaginal, the way of images. So the thinking 
that is of the soul and the psychological is the poetic basis of what Hillman refers to as the poetic basis of mind. You speak in images, you hear an echo. It's poetic, it's metaphorical. The other way of making sense of life and yourself is through abstractions. Words that carry no echo, words that explain. A style of making sense that explains. This means that. I have a snake in my dream. This means. You've just explained your dream, and Hillman would say, killed the image. Yeah? Another way to get this that we immediately recognize is a poem doesn't explain anything. It reveals something. We're talking about revelation here. We're talking about the relationship between beauty and a truth that is self-evident. A poem doesn't need to be explained. We may want to work with it in a way that explicates it, that brings out more dimensions of it, but we don't want to explain it. So when we get to identity, Hillman talks about, as does Jung, the ego, as does Freud. We're now in the, we're now in the tradition. And what is the, what is the ego, and what's the ego's relationship to your soul or your heart? Your ego is that part of you that you identify, that's me. Oh, that's me. Other people, without knowing your name, but if you've been around, oh, so-and-so is here because they feel you. You know the way someone, you go into a room, someone's particular, oh, that's so-and-so's room because that's the way they are. That's an expression of them, the you. But then there's the you that's listening to me trying to make sense of all this. And that you I'm trying to, I'm presuming, is somewhat literal. Wants to explain things, and wants concepts, doesn't want images. And I'm presuming that only because I am that way too. We are creatures of our culture. Ever since Descartes, it's been a long, slippery slope. Not a long, a very quick, slippery slope to thinking literally. Another way to say this is that the romantics always make a point. We can distinguish what we cannot separate. So I am making these distinctions. We can talk about Aphrodite. We can talk about uh, psyche. We can talk about pan. These are all distinctions of different forces and ways of being in the world. But they are also all of one. They are under Zeus's reign. We are also all one. We have to be able to hold the ambiguity, and this is the hard part, that we are at the same time one and many. And the many only becomes about because of the one, and the one only comes about because of its relationship to the many. The romantic's position is that the one manifests through each of the many. You and I are a manifestation of the one. We just need, we just need to realize that. The transcendent, transcendent position of the spiritual that Hillman doesn't care for is that vision where we all have to be united in some one somewhere else. Heaven is here on earth. It's a state of mind. That's the position from the pagan. Back to identity. So the literal you that thinks that separation is actually possible, that you and I are not always in relationship and anything we see is not in relationship, 
believes that separation is possible and thinks it's, it makes sense to talk about the body distinct from the mind or the earth distinct from spirit, heaven distinct from earth. I'm now speaking to that mind because that mind needs to be attended to, that identity needs to be attended to, comfort, comforted, and given a way to make a, a leap into this other way of making sense. So in this picture, you'll see that the green is matter and that spirit is blue, yes? Now all I've done is turn them on axis. And if you imagine the two coming together, matter, merely matter, separate matters coming to meet the spirit. And where they overlap, guess what pops into life? Your soul. But really, your soul is there all the time, mediating the relationship between these two. We just don't usually recognize it. So another way to say that about the soul, the soul partakes of matter, partakes of mind, but is neither. Both and, neither nor. That's called a paradoxical statement, and that's the nature of your soul. Paradoxical. That's a paradoxical Definition. It's not, a, it's not a straight definition. It also happens to be the definition of metaphor, which also happens to be the definition of an image, which also itself is paradoxical because even though you understand me, you also know it's not a definition. Here we are. This state of mind that I'm trying to invoke is what Hillman calls the middle realm. It's your soul state. We tend to fall in one or the other because the literal ego, the one that believes in separation, whose identity is based on separation, can't accept this, even though, of course, we long for it. We've been acculturated to behave this way. We've been acculturated to think this way. When we behave this way and we think this way, there's a sick congruency. It is inherently pathological. Because if you believe in separation, you're a deadly soul. Whether you want to be or not. Because most of us are this way unconsciously, not aware of it. No matter how much we don't want to be that way, it is who we are. On the other hand, Hillman points to an imaginal ego. Jung calls this the dream ego. This ego, we could say, has a poetic sensibility. My identity is defined by how I behave in any moment, by my awareness of what is moving through me and the relationship between the two. My responsibility is to care for the soul. And when I say my soul, yes, it's mine in the sense that it also displays my history, my own personal suffering, but it's also uh, ubiquitous and eternal. The juxtaposition of the historical, the temporal, and the eternal, there's another name for that. That's called now. When you're now and present, you are present to both your own personal history and how it relates to the much bigger picture, um, which is history and culture, and how history and culture have come to be through the ages, through our ideas and the relationship we have to them. Hillman is trying to get you, in terms of your identity, to move to this imaginal ego that I've tried to portray with little. It's just fuzzy and barely there, 
but solid enough that you and I recognize one in each other. Oh, Mimi, good to see you. That's still Mimi. Although Mimi might have had a really wild dream last night and really be thinking some wild things, but she's still somehow Mimi. Yeah? This soul, I mean, excuse me, this ego, the dream ego, knows about intimacy in a real way. The separate ego longs for intimacy, but can't really experience it because in this way of being, intimacy is defined by being porous and letting oneself be open to the archetypes and letting them move through you, take over your imagination, and you watch it. So it's your soul, and it's you, and it's not you. You have to be able to hold that ambiguity. Just as you can follow what I'm saying, you can follow that. So, with Hellman, when we talk about, I'll make the transition to self-development. <laughs> um, the first question is, who's asking the question? Meaning, is that coming from a place, from a soul that thinks of itself literally, that believes in separation? Or is that coming from a soul who really means, or excuse me, from an, uh, uh, an imaginal ego which means by that question, how do I differentiate all these powers and forces to make sense of them in a way that they don't have me? In Jung's sense, I can dance with them, I can play with them. I'm not possessed. And in that differentiation, I become more interesting because I have more ways of consciously moving. Now, when I say I... It's the soul that's becoming conscious in that process, and you are its facilitator as an imaginal ego. So really you're helping the soul become conscious, and that's Jung's definition of an archetype. So when we say archetypal psychology, Hillman's very clear it is not a psychology of the archetypes. Archetypal just means it gives value and depth and mystery to these forces that come into our awareness through images, whether they be images that are incarnated on earth that we can perceive with our five senses or images that come through story and poetry, myth. So, Michael, I guess now I can answer that question about Thomas More. I think he walks a very fine line because he is true to his teacher, and I think he wants to be useful in the way, in the best sense of the way you mean it. But if you have a literal ego or a woo-woo self, you're going to take that reading and be untrue to his intentions. It's not his fault. He's a monotheist. <laughs> So in the time allotted to me, I don't know what else we can do to cover the basics. Oh, I should say, so the basics you can find in Revisioning Psychology, where Hillman talks about basically the four principles. The soul personifies, that's the nature of the soul. The soul engages with other beings. We can call that animism, we can call that a certain take on paganism, 
but it means that the world is alive and we are in dialogue <coughs> with images. As I said, those images can take on an earthly form or not. But the, the question is dialogue. It's an animated world that's fully alive. What's deadly is your perspective that prohibits you from seeing that. That's personifying. The other P word is pathologizing. The soul will always get into messes that are painful, ugly, and dramatic. This is another way of talking about the spirit-soul tension. The soul loves drama. The soul needs drama to feel itself. What's the spirit, in terms of our classical understanding, want to do? It's just sweet love, baby. I'm here to transcend. The particulars, oh, don't get bogged down in the details. For the soul, as it is aesthetic, it's all about the details. Your aesthetic sensibility is all about the details. Think about anything creative you do. You know, you want to get it just right. It's very precise, not in an Apollonic way, but in a very real way that you can feel. It's messy. That's pathologizing. The other piece is seeing through. So when I talk about psyche, as I've <coughs> just done in the most disrespectful way with only giving you bare hints and no full picture at all, or Pan and uh, his relationship to rhythm and his compulsion and the, the, the inherent capacity of the archetype to regulate itself, meaning that Inhibition and compulsion are always two ends of the spectrum. And when the music starts to play, the compulsion is what should we say, civilized? Actually, it's just been in contact with art. It's made music. So the scene through is in any image means you, you see it as an icon, a way into the world. So when I talk about Pan, it's a way into the world. When I talk about Aphrodite, it's a way into the world. And on and on it goes for each of the archetypes. But it's not a psychology of the archetypes because that tends to reify and make them real like you and I are real. They're not. Hillman wants us to go in the other direction. He wants us to see ourselves as images. There are those graduate students who have literally become psychotic from reading Hillman. <laughs> They've been checked into little hospitals and had a stay. I think you can see why, because the juxtaposition to our habitual way of making sense of everything is turned upside down. I haven't said much about Eros and the relationship of Eros to all this. But as you know, our culture is based on Eros and is based on Socrates. It's based on the capacity to engage in dialogue that is transformative. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Psychology is the way of psyche. Sophia, philosophia, is a woman of wisdom. Psyche is our soul. We usually want to talk about psychology and philosophy 
as distinct disciplines. Hillman blurs the boundaries because he's a devotee of Socrates and he speaks as Socrates always did when he had to resort to something compelling or as Plato did, he speaks a myth and story. So I think Hillman's question is the most important question of all because if you understand what I'm saying, I don't think it requires any belief. Some part of you recognizes what I'm saying is true. If it doesn't, I'm just another guy, espousing another way of being. If it does, then you have to recognize that much of what we do is counterproductive with the best of intentions. And it's not because the world is inherently mad or the world is inherently dysfunctional. It's because we are through our way of making sense. Because ultimately what Hillman is doing is trying to convey to you a way of making sense where truth and beauty are united. That's what philosophy is about. That's what psychology is about. And the truth of which I speak is not a truth that can be explained. It's only a truth that can be felt. Just as beauty, the kind of beauty I'm talking about, is not simply physical beauty. It's the gesture of care. It's the gesture that one recognizes as artful, as beautiful. It may not be pretty. It may be very ugly. It may be very painful. But you recognize it as right and necessary. All these are... All these qualities are caught up in what we mean by beauty and truth in Hillman's sense, in the Socratic sense. <laughs> I have many more hours to go on, but time does, but time does not allow. <sighs> First of all, thank you, John. That, that was extraordinarily helpful and beautiful. And what I'd actually like to do for a few minutes is just to sit in silence together mm -hmm. because we've heard, Just to, let's just sit for a little bit. I'll track the time, but mm -hmm. I'd like to be quiet for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Peace, peace. Well, I have to say, I am completely blown away by this, and um, it's almost impossible for me to speak. I think it just ignited so much in me. Um, so rather than trying to speak, I'll see if there's anybody uh, here who is able to speak. Diana, you had your hand up. I missed your lecture uh, because I was gone. Right. Did you not talk about, isn't this like basics that you were maybe covering too, or is, how, is this different from? Well, let me, let me try to respond to that, because that's a question, so I can actually respond to it. Um, um, I could let you be quiet and ask him my question first, if you want. Yeah, but I... Nine months ago, in the middle of a kind of a big opening in my own life, somehow I found my way to Hillman, right? And I just 
have been drinking it in for nine months because I needed it, right? But I, um, so I've been working on this for a long time. But what John just did um, was really powerful for me personally. I don't know how it was for the other people in the room. Um, and so the physical sensation is that my head feels very um, full. Uh, and not just my head, but my being feels uh, shifted into... It's, it feels like an opening to a deepening of my understanding of Hillman that makes me want to spend more time with John. That's, so that's what's going on for me. Uh, so I think John's critique of my talk is, is very apt, that I was talking about archetypal psychology, not from within it. So what he just did was to talk from within it, and, and therefore uh, uh, um, make it real uh, in... I'm not putting my talk down, but he made it, made it real in a deeper way. Um, other questions or reflections? Jennifer. Well, I share your sensation of being affected by this, Michael. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just say, first off, I loved your response to sitting in silence. Mm -hmm. First off. Um, so just to say this from this place, I feel, I, I want to say, you can come anytime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's that kind of... Um, and I feel both stunned, but not at all stunned. Uh, just right at home and overjoyed. I couldn't possibly explain what you just did this morning, <laughs> but I know it. It's like, I'm really grateful for this, John. Mm. Try to unpack it later or never unpack it, but this was profound. So I'm really sharing with you, Michael, this enormous threshold that I think we've all right. been invited through. Um, thank you. And for those who are listening and don't know Jennifer Stoll, who directs the retreat center at Commonweal, and is also one of the people at Commonweal who um, holds the mystery in a, in a deep way. And the, these are spheres that Jennifer has uh, walked through, or being a Pisces, maybe swam through for, <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. Other reflections? Mimi, yeah. I just want to say, trickster. <laughs> I mean, God, you said that God was coming in, and, and I'm sitting here, like, every, I'm, like you, I was just, as the English say, gobsmacked, <laughs> and happy, and I want to shout and sing and cry and stamp my feet and go, you trickster, <laughs> you know, thank you, and darn you, and just, <laughs> you know, and then home again, but different. Home's all different now. Yeah. And Mimi Calpestri, who just spoke, has been living with Hillman by her bedside and reading him every morning for and I, and I many years. I've therapist to 35 years' yeah. work, and it's just like, yeah. wow. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And I think, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, would you say your name again? Eileen Wolf. Yeah, Eileen, go ahead. Um, 
Yeah, I was really moved by the way you hold the teaching of this work. And I think for me, it's because it's so embodied and lived. And I think that's what I'm reminded to do is like go back for the body, keep going back for the body. Because when you talk about the the conflict between inhibit, inhibitedness and compulsion, I think the materialistic view is a compulsive one. The world we live in is very much driven by more and more. And if we can go back to what really in that relationship with the body, speaking from the body, which I felt like you did. Mm. So I appreciate that. Mm. Anyone else got pieces? Yes, Diana. Um, this is my introduction to it, so my mind was working more than probably other people's. <laughs> uh, one of the, I read in the um, write-up that you just have come to disagree with Hillman in certain ways. Um, was that part of what you presented, or is that something? I mean, I'd be curious also mm -hmm. about where that where you diverge. Mm -hmm. um, no, I don't. I think though Hillman would never use a diagram. That would be a spiritual kind of uh, way of moving. Heresy, right. Um, I think I was true to what uh, his intentions are and his spirit is and his thinking. Um, my disagreements I don't want to speak of at this point because I feel they're only relevant once you understand what he's up to. Mm -hmm. And then otherwise the guard at the gate is really ready to go for the jugular because what he's saying is so threatening to the guard at the gate. So, John, I'd like to step back, actually, from the Hillman material for a minute and, um, and go back to your broader universe of work. So, um, I know that you co-teach with the philosopher Jacob, Jacob Needleman. Uh, and um, and um, you mentioned when I asked you about other sort of sources for you in addition to Hillman, you mentioned Needleman, you mentioned uh, Owen Barfield and Goethe and Coleridge and the Romantics. Uh, you mentioned uh, how Jacob Needleman represents the esoteric lineage and you spoke of Pythagoras and Plato working line from Pythagoras to Plato and that Needleman is in that line. And um, so I actually don't know who Owen Barfield is. Who is mm. Owen Barfield? Owen Barfield, uh, it's probably best known as C.S. Lewis's best friend and inspiration. Oh, really? Okay. He was a, in a group called the Inklings okay. that included Lewis, Tolkien, Barfield, and I'm forgetting the fourth man's name, who's also prominent. Um, they all recognize Barfield as their teacher and the teacher's teacher. And uh, Barfield's interest was in what he called the evolution of consciousness. And tracking that through our understanding of language and what words are, uh, one of his books I brought here called Poetic Diction, which is a Bible for a lot of poets, um, because he explores the nature of metaphor 
in the state of awareness that metaphor brings. And um, you talked properly about what we're looking at here is the Western lineage, Mm -hmm. uh, which overlaps with the Eastern lineage in many Mm -hmm. interesting ways, Mm -hmm. but is distinct. What is Needleman's lineage? I, I seem to remember that he might have been uh, involved with the Gurdjieff teachings, but am I correct about mm-hmm. that? You are. Yeah. What is his, how does he see his lineage? I don't know that I... I want to clarify when you said I'm teaching. I have not taught with uh, okay. Jacob in the past. I'm doing that next week. I've okay. interviewed him on several occasions. Okay. Um, we're dear friends. I've learned a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. from him. And we've done a new school conversation mm-hmm. with him. Right. I didn't do it. Steve Heilig did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I think in terms of your interest, I think um, he's known as Jerry. Jerry would certainly see himself within the perennial f- tradition yeah. and also uh, is dedicated to the Gurdjieff work. Mm-hmm. And that's the way he brings it to life. Mm-hmm. And um, Say a word more about your experience. Well, let's go to Goethe. <laughs> um, you know, clearly a, a most extraordinary figure, but what is, how does Goethe, what is your encounter with Goethe? Mm. I think Goethe, Goethe's our man mm-hmm. in that, uh, so Goethe is the author of Faust, the mm-hmm. preeminent uh, poet of his day, recognized as a genius of his day. Mm-hmm. But Goethe believed that his own lineage would be recognized in a, a hundred or two hundred years through the science, the methodology of science that he developed. It's now known as Goethean science. It's the science that a romantic would create, where matter is alive and we're in relationship to it. And the experiment, unlike our tradition, is not to torture her secrets from her, but have her reveal her true nature. And our job is to listen and be in relationship. Goethe the poet is Goethe the scientist. The two are seamless and distinct. Mm I'm interested in his capacity to blend those two worlds. I actually have a a Goethe quote that I'd like to read because it is just so fun. Let me see if I can find it real quickly. Yes. Because, as I said, with Hillman, uh, people go literally crazy. Um, Because of trying to bridge these two sensibilities that we have, as I said, the, the materialist that makes sense of life through explanation and seeing things as separate. Then the other part of us that knows better, or should I say knows bigger, but yet we got to get things done. A car works because we believe in merely matter. So Goethe trying to work with these two sensibilities and be true to the necessities of each has this to say. In all scientific research, the difficulty of uniting idea and experience appears to be a great obstacle for an idea, and then I say in parentheses, image or archive, is independent of time and place, but research must be restricted within them. 
Therefore, in an idea, the simultaneous and successive are intimately bound up together, whereas in an experience, they are always separated. Our attempt to imagine an operation of nature as both simultaneous and successive, as we must in an idea, seems to drive us to the verge of insanity. The intellect cannot picture united what the senses present to it separately, and thus the duel between the perceived and the ideated remains forever unsolved. That's the ambiguity of life here on Earth. Goethe actually worked to find a way, which I would say earlier, which I called the middle way, um, of making that make sense to us. And it is inherently paradoxical, that relationship of time and eternity, or matter and the immaterial. So, excuse me, Goethe um, is where I'm at. I'm immersed in Goethe. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, it would be fun to explore that further. As you, you probably know, uh, that Goethe is also a, a fundamental force both in the work of Carl Jung and in the work of Rudolf Steiner. And it's so interesting the two directions that the two of them took because they were contemporaries. They knew each other and they actually disliked each other. Uh, you know, they were... Um, but Jung actually frequently repeated the story that his grandmother or great-grandmother had taken what in German was called a jump to the side and had an affair with Goethe and Jung liked to think that he was actually a, a physiological descendant of, of Goethe's but, but Goethe was fundamental to Jung and he frequently repeated that joke. Uh, Steiner, uh, Rudolf Steiner, the great founder of the anthroposophical tradition was a very great Goethe scholar before he founded uh, anthroposophy uh, and one can see in both of them, um, you know, much of Goethe's influence. But one of the things, you, you mentioned that Needleman represents an esoteric tradition. Uh, and I take it, am I not correct in saying, that Hillman is not an esotericist. At least I've seen no evidence that he is. Is that a correct statement? Well, in my mind, Human is an esotericist in that the esotericist's job, the esotericist's interest, is to make the inner palpable. Okay, I, I can go with that. But what I mean is that... Let's see if I can say this differently. Uh, all right. If you take Roberto Esagioli, the founder of mm -hmm. psychosynthesis, he made a decision to keep his psychology completely distinct from his esoteric tradition. Mm -hmm. He was deeply involved, was a senior partner in Alice Bailey's work, mm -hmm. in the Bailey work. Mm -hmm. But his psychology, which mm -hmm. is taught widely mm -hmm. in transpersonal schools, because mm -hmm. it's so simple mm -hmm. uh, and it's so beautiful as mm -hmm. an approach, doesn't require any esoteric reference at all. Mm -hmm. Then you take Jung, and Jung uh, hid his esoteric interest for long periods of time. The Red Book didn't come out until mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, mm -hmm. so he tried to present his psychology. Mm -hmm. As, uh, mm -hmm. as without esoteric mm -hmm. reference. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm talking about, functionally, you can say that Hillman's work is that of an esoteric. But there doesn't, uh, like Brother David Steindl Rast is another person, uh, he's, you know, he says, I forget the words he uses, but basically he says, uh, 
he doesn't have any, he, he avoids mumbo jumbo, is what, what he calls it. Mm -hmm. So the question is, I don't see any trace of mumbo jumbo in Hillman mm -hmm. any more than I see it in mm -hmm. Brother David Steindl Rast. Mm -hmm. uh, for Brother David Steindl Rast, Rilke, for example, mm -hmm. is, and, and Rilke, you could say, is an esotericist in the same way Hillman is, mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because they perform that function. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't involve, as in the Bailey work or in something like that, uh, a concretization of an imaginal world of spirit mm -hmm. that, uh, or Steiner. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Steiner didn't separate his psychology. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, Hillman is not an esotericist. I agree, is that correct? I okay. agree. So what about Excuse Coleridge? Me, let me, I also yeah. want to mention yeah. in relation to Steiner, yeah. uh, Barfield is a Steiner soul. Oh, he is? Yes. And he connected with Steiner? Uh, yes. Okay. He, yes. Barfield, I feel, is one of the most clarifying exponents of Steiner's work. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. You know, one of the things that has completely fascinated me, I'm always fascinated by the fate of different psychological and spiritual memes over time mm -hmm. in the competition of memes. Mm -hmm. What survives? So if you look at the last you know, 30, 40 years, at all the different spiritual traditions that have come and gone in the United States, and you ask which ones have distinguished themselves. For example, insight meditation and Vipassana, mm. right, has distinguished itself as a meme. Of all the Buddhist mm. memes around, it's one of, the, the, I would say, insight meditation and Zen are the two that have distinguished themselves in the competition of all the Buddhist memes for psychological mm. space mm. in the culture. Mm. And then you look at Steiner, whose writing is almost impenetrable unless you're really interested, mm -hmm. which I am. Mm -hmm. And yet, you look at the incredible power that Steiner's work continues to have with you know, uh, organic horticulture, with uh, the Waldorf schools, with the, uh, with the great living centers for you know, uh, people with deep mental challenges, uh, his work in the cancer field, uh, the anthroposophical hospitals throughout Europe, you see this amazing sustained impact of the Steiner meme, you know. And you look at Jung, who, you know, tainted with uh, Nazi relationships mm -hmm. and all that stuff, was suppressed for quite a long mm -hmm. time in much of the West. And now, to me, is a much more, I mean, I see him as the preeminent psychologist of our time, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and having eclipsed Freud for me, although that's an aesthetic judgment. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so it's interesting to look at Hillman in that light. Uh, Thomas More considers Hillman as, the, as, as, as great as Jung. Mm -hmm. um, I, what do you think about that? I think that's difficult to argue, but do you have a view of that? The question honestly doesn't interest me. Okay. In that, uh, what was each bringing forth? And mm -hmm. Hillman had the advantage of standing on the shoulders of Jung. Yeah, right. Right? Uh, depth psychology was already established. Right. Uh, Jung and his breadth. How could it not be that someone like a Hillman could come along and see in Jung some of Jung's own confusions given the breadth and also... Uh, pick certain strands that he felt were essential for our time. Mm -hmm. 
um, I think that's what Hillman did mm-hmm. uh, in the most honorable of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to say a thousand years from now, if we're around and their thought is around, uh, who will be viewed, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't know. To me, and again, I'm only a beginner on this, um, to me, you know, my fundamental problem with Hillman is that um, he doesn't seem to have what is for me aesthetically, at a soul level for me, it, he doesn't have a powerful sense of oneness. He is interested in the multiplicity as you spoke of it. And I gave a talk uh, last week at Sophia University, which used to be the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, and one of the faculty members there commenting on that said that Hillman was more comfortable with the void. And I said, well, there's the void and there's the void. There's the Buddhist void, which is generative and whole. And then there is just the void. And it seemed to me that Hillman was functioning more with just the void. But then I thought about that further, and I thought, wait a minute, where do all the archetypes come from, if not out of the void? And so, but I want you to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I don't sense in Hillman. There's a, there's a, there's a quality of, I don't know if the word cynicism is right, but, you know, when Hillman says... Um, you know, let's see what interesting transgressions we are led to, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There isn't a sense of, precisely because he is not as interested in spirit as he is in soul, there isn't that effort to move forward toward more integration. There's a, or the only way that effort reflects itself is in a trusting that by being a witness to the archetypes, we somehow in that become more whole. But there's not... Well, I guess let's it's, just stop for a second there. So yeah. I think you said it and you're thinking out loud. Yeah. The, uh, the only hesitation is your, your hesitation is somewhat. Won't we become somewhat more mm-hmm. whole? Right. If you're constantly being differentiated, mm-hmm. which is the Jungian path. Mm-hmm. And if we see, evol- if we, uh, as a materialist, if we understand evolution as just a constant differentiation, mm-hmm. what's the relationship of that to the whole? Each act of differentiation is an expression of the whole. Mm-hmm. If you are not longing to transcend and are present, the whole comes through you. Yeah, Hillman, Hillman is always about getting you to be present to what's moving through you right now. And each of that, of course, is a reflection of the whole. But Hillman does have this, what he calls this psychology, an acorn theory of psychology. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is something I'd like to ask you about, because the acorn theory, you know, out of the acorn grows the mighty oak. And, and Hillman does seem to have a sense that we are born with a soul with a telos, with a Mm -hmm, purpose that mm -hmm. is going to unfold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that's a quite metaphysical position, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So one could say that's his wholeness, the the telos of the acorn of the soul. I think your sensibility is right, but the thinking 
takes it away. And so, the telos is very concrete in that we are continually stuck in the same dilemmas. And your dilemmas are different than my dilemmas, different than Art's dilemmas, different than Kitty's dilemmas. We go round and round and round. Hopefully we deepen in that. And in that, when we look back at a certain point, we see we have a sense of fate or destiny. We only see the telos in reflection and having lived long enough and suffered enough to see the things you can't get over. That's your fate. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So if we were to pursue... You said the time was limited, and it has been. But if, if you were to lay out a course of study of archetypal psychology that went beyond this mm. archetypal psychology 101, which we've done today, what would it look like? What would be the, the, the teaching modules of... Uh, <laughs> of uh, I mean, would you go through the different books? Or which books would you teach? How would you approach it? Uh, I would start with Myth of Analysis, Mm -hmm. part one, on psychological creativity. Mm -hmm. So that you, we, know what our story is. Mm -hmm. And that that's the reference. And through Hillman's explication of the story, you get his method. Mm -hmm. And really all we're trying, excuse me, all we're trying to get, as if it was this one little thing, is his method. How to make sense of everything as he does. Mm -hmm. Where would you go from there? A blue fire. Blue fire. Because then we get, I think uh, Thomas More's uh, introductions are quite wonderful. And then, as you know, the the collected works, the uniform edition of Hillman now, I think are up to 10 thick volumes. We could spend years in some of those volumes, as we were talking about earlier, or I was, Hillman on alchemy is years. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're really going to get that. So that's not something we would do unless we all decide we're going to spend years on alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a blue fire, and from there, if you understand the basics, then you have to go with your own fate. What are you drawn to? You know, and what I mean by what are you drawn to? What, are you, what most attracts you and what are you most repulsed by? I'd want to go to equally to both. But that's, that's what I'm dealing with you, not, you know what I mean, when I say you, an individual. And if we were to follow your course of interest in the Romantic tradition more broadly in the whole lineage that, that Hillman and Jung and... Mm. Pythagoras and Plato and Coleridge and Goethe, uh, Owen Barfield uh, and Faust, uh, and Goethe, not Faust, mm-hmm. are a part of. Um, how would you approach a, a, a sort of a, your personal survey of what is your map that you would do of the Romantic? I tradition? just happened to have brought a couple of those books. Oh, good, yeah. Uh, I cannot recommend strongly enough An Endless Trace by Christopher Banford, mm-hmm. editor of Steiner Books, by the way. Mm-hmm. and Romanticism in the Esoteric Tradition by Paul Davies. Mm. There's a few months. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I would go to Therapia by Cushman, mm-hmm. Needleman's favorite take on Plato, and I can second that. I'm immersed in that right now. 
John Goldthorpe, thank you for being with us at the New School. Michael, it was a real privilege. Great thank you very much. I'm sure we'll be talking more. Great. <laughs>